Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast. Last week, we discussed the events leading up to the Gallipoli campaign. Today, we're going to see what happened following the Allied landing. The plan was seemingly simple, at least to those who had conceived of it, to capture Ottoman forts and artillery batteries, thus allowing a naval force to advance through the Turkish Straits all the way up to the Sea of Marmara to Istanbul, the most important strategically located city in the entire country. But lack of sufficient planning, as well as underestimating Turkish forces, led to one of the biggest and most disastrous military blunders in history. Let's join up with the Anzacs, Australian and New Zealander Army Corps, and see what awaits us at the landing at Gallipoli, right here on the History Loves Company podcast because history is shaped by all of us. The Turkish Straits are, geographically speaking, quite interesting. They lie on the cusp of two continents, with the northwestern side being situated in Europe, while the southeastern side is in Asia. The British 29th Division was scheduled to land at Cape Helles, which is in Europe, while the French were due at Kumkale, in Asia. The Anzacs, on the other hand, led by the 3rd Australian Infantry Brigade, were to land just north of Gabatepe on the Aegean Sea coast of the Straits, where they would push across the peninsula, cut off the Ottoman advance at the fort at Kilitbahir, therefore stopping enemy reinforcements from reaching Cape Helles. This particular sector came to be known as Anzac Cove, and is still colloquially known as such to this day. The Allied landings were initially scheduled for April 23, 1915, but inclement weather saw to it that they were postponed until April 25th. Late in the evening on April 24th, some 25,000 men mobilized for the disembarkation. From the various battleships upon which they had been transported, they would be towed by steamship close to shore, at which time they'd make the final stretch by rowboats. Their first order of business was to venture inland to cut the enemy's communication lines, thus severing the ties between Ottoman forces at the north end of the strait with those at the south end. At around 2 a.m. on April 25th, the Ottomans first detected Allied ships on the horizon. The observer, a soldier in the Ottoman 27th Infantry Regiment, reported the sight to his commanding officer, one Captain Fike who in turn reported it to his commanding officer, Ismet Bey. An hour later, however, clouds had obscured the moon from view, the lack of light of which hid the Allied ships from sight. These conditions, combined with an overall sense of confusion, made the Turks question whether it was a real landing force or simply a decoy, but they'd soon discover that it was, in fact, the real thing. Just past 4 a.m. that same morning, the first wave of troops, each of whom were part of the Anzacs, began making landfall, albeit 1.2 miles, or 2 kilometers further north than their intended destination. Whether this was due to a navigational error or unforeseen currents is anybody's guess, though the terrain in the spot where they ended up landing proved to be far more difficult to traverse. Here, there were virtually no beaches, as the coastline rose steeply out of the sea. As such, the area was easier for the enemy to defend, and while only two Turkish companies were stationed there, they were able to inflict several casualties on the Anzacs before being overtaken. To make matters worse, the Australians were equipped with inaccurate maps, which, when combined with the rugged terrain, made the push inland virtually impossible. The uneven landscape inadvertently separated the Anzac forces, causing some to arrive earlier at certain points than others. This created another problem, as the advancing force was broken up into small groups, which would prove ineffective in supporting incoming troops. But four hours later, things appeared to be progressing in the Allies' favor, as the bulk of the Australian 1st Division had made landfall safely and were pushing inland. Receiving word of this, Ottoman Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kemal, who would later serve as the Republic of Turkey's first president, ordered those forces securing the area to regroup at nearby Chunuk Bayir and Sari Bayir, known colloquially by the Anzacs simply as the Heights, for their decidedly higher elevation than the surrounding landscape. 
By late afternoon, after a day of defeats for the Anzacs as well as the inability to capture the heights from the enemy, a reembarkation was initially planned, but deemed impossible by the British Royal Navy. In light of these developments, British Lieutenant General Sir William Birdwood ordered the men to start digging, meaning to begin a trench network, one that would ultimately crisscross much of the lower half of the peninsula. On that first day alone, some 2,000 Australians had been killed or wounded, and the failure to capture the high ground led to a stalemate. But that first day didn't prove to be a total Allied loss. Offshore, an Australian submarine, HMAS AE-2, commanded by Lieutenant Commander Henry Stoker, managed to successfully venture through the Turkish Straits, and even torpedoed an Ottoman gunboat before evading a destroyer. Eventually, despite heavy resistance which it managed to quell, the sub was able to advance all the way to the Sea of Marmara, where it was given orders to virtually run amuck, and with no enemy retaliation in sight, took out several Ottoman ships in the process. By April 27th, two days after the Anzac landing, as well as that of British and French forces at Cape Hellas, the Gallipoli Campaign's land offensive began. The tactical stalemate imposed two days prior came to an abrupt end when the Ottoman 19th Division, reinforced by the Ottoman 5th Division, launched a counterattack on six Allied brigades. The Allies, however, were able to hold the enemy back with the aid of naval gunfire. The following day, the first battle of the campaign began. Known as the First Battle of Krithia, it was an attempt at capturing a small village that served as an Ottoman outpost. The plan of attack, however, proved overly complex, and, due to poor communication, proved to be a disastrous undertaking. By 6 p.m. that day, Ottoman forces had single-handedly halted the Allied advance, causing some 3,000 casualties as a result. Though the First Battle of Krithia was the first in the campaign to end badly, at least from the Allies' perspective, the troops had no way of knowing that it was a foreshadowing of sorts. Over the ensuing two days, Ottoman reinforcements were sent in to relieve their exhausted, wounded, or dead comrades, thus revealing to the Allies that their previous assumptions of a swift victory would prove far more difficult than they'd initially thought. On April 30th, the British Royal Naval Division, under the command of Major General Archibald Paris, landed at Gallipoli, though it would prove fruitless. Over the ensuing two days, eight Turkish battalions were sent from Istanbul as reinforcements and quickly launched counterattacks at both Cape Helles and Anzac Cove. On May 1st, Lieutenant General Birdwood ordered the Anzacs to attack the advancing Turks from nearby Russell's Top and Quinn's Post. Though their initial push proved successful, backed by naval firepower, their separation under cover of night meant that they could advance no further without exposing themselves to the enemy. Still, they were able to take out some 1,000 Turks in the process. The opening days of May saw a second attempt to capture the stronghold at Krithia. Known simply as the Second Battle of Krithia, British General Sir Ian Hamilton ordered the Anzacs, specifically the Australian 2nd Infantry Brigade and the New Zealand Infantry Brigade, along with 20 Aussie field guns to regroup at the Cape Helles Front to act as reserves for the Allied advance on the village. The Anzacs and British were to take Krithia itself, along with nearby Achibaba, the latter of which was one of the more strategically important areas of the aforementioned heights, while the French were scheduled to capture Kerevesdere, a stream located within a vast gully. On the morning of May 6th, following a half hour of artillery preparation, the offensive began. What ensued was somewhat chaotic, again from the point of view of the Allies, as the British and French battalions became separated when storming the gully, arriving in unfamiliar territory. Though their attempts to outflank the Ottomans failed, the New Zealanders were able to attack Krithia proper two days later. In addition to this, the Australians quickly advanced to the British front line, gaining a whopping 660 yards, or 600 meters, a feat that proved nearly impossible in any World War I battlefield. Though just 440 yards, 400 meters shy of their objective, they were able to link up with the New Zealanders and were ordered to dig a new trench. The objective was suspended shortly thereafter, and a brief respite took place on both sides as the Allies and Ottomans regrouped, gained 
supplies and sent in reinforcements, but little did the Allies suspect that a major counteroffensive at the hands of their adversaries was looming on the horizon. The morning of May 18, 1915, began like any other. The sun was shining overhead, with the occasional cloud passing over. It had been considerably quiet since the Anzacs had dug in just shy of Krithia. A bit too quiet were you to ask any of the troops holed up in the freshly made trench. But then, that same day, British aircraft flying reconnaissance missions in the area spotted Ottoman forces preparing for something seemingly big. The Turks had initially planned to take the Anzacs by surprise, with a force 42,000 strong intent on driving some 17,000 Australians and New Zealanders into the sea. Though low on ammunition and supplies, they were relying on the element of surprise, but, with the Anzacs having been forewarned, the latter were ready for them. The number of casualties speak for themselves, with the Ottomans having suffered some 13,000 in total, of which 3,000 were killed. The Australians and New Zealanders, on the other hand, only suffered 628, of which only 160 were killed. So severe were the loss of Turkish lives that a truce was called, and on May 24th, much like the Christmas truce between British and German troops on the Western Front five months prior, the two sides met on no man's land to gather their dead for proper burial. For the first time since the campaign began, Australians, New Zealanders, and Turks met face to face, and, having set aside their weapons and differences for a brief period of time, realized that they weren't all that different from one another. Such are the horrors and hell of war. We as civilians tend to think that, quote-unquote, the enemy is just some faceless entity, that there aren't honest-to-God living, breathing people behind the guns, a lesson troops from both sides learned the hard, albeit harrowing, way on that fateful spring day in 1915. As the Turks had run out of artillery ammunition, they had to rely on shelling the Anzacs. Between mid-May and the first week of June that same year, they had fired some 18,000 shells on their adversaries. Ottoman forces soon ceased frontal assaults, opting instead for tunneling in which to plant landmines. In retaliation, the Australians and New Zealanders launched several minor countermeasures that involved the use of snipers and grenades. But in June, the heavy fighting resumed. Back near Cape Helles, British and French forces launched an attack on both Krithia and Achibaba for a third time. From the outcome of the Third Battle of Krithia, as it has come to be called, the possibility of decisive victory in favor of the Allies was no longer viable. From then on, objectives were measured in mere hundreds of yards as opposed to whole sectors or territories. The casualties amounted to some 25% on both sides. Despite the challenges in terrain and the sheer number of defeats, however, High Command urged the campaign to move forward, certain that, if the Allies kept pushing, then they'd make some headway. By the time August came around, the Allies had adopted a new strategy. British General Sir Ian Hamilton ordered the Allies to secure the Sadi Bayir range. Noting at last that the Turks had maintained the high ground throughout much of the Gallipoli campaign, the objective was to capture the heights in both Sadi Bayir and Chunuk Bayir. To do this, they would send two fresh infantry divisions to a spot five miles, eight kilometers north of Anzac Cove, which would then be followed by an advance onto Sadi Bayir from the northwest. At Anzac Cove proper, an offensive would be made against the Sadi Bayir range itself, through rough, albeit virtually undefended, terrain. Preparations were made, including reconnaissance flights searching for Ottoman naval guns. Said missions were even able to bombard Turkish ammunition reserves. This last chance for the Allies was seemingly off to a good start. But taking the heights would prove far more difficult than any other endeavor at Gallipoli up to that point. The Ottomans were successfully able to defend their positions, thus halting the British advance inland. The Australians, on the other hand, made the push all the way to the Ottoman trench line, scattering enemy forces, though it would do little as the attack on Chunuk Bayir ultimately failed. Though the New Zealand Infantry Brigade seized the summit of Chunuk Bayir on the morning of August 8th, the Australians below were essentially wiped out in wave after wave of Turkish fire. As such, the New Zealanders and their British relief were only able to hold the summit for two days before a vicious counterattack, launched by Lieutenant Colonel 
Mustafa Kemal, drove them from the heights for good. Out of the force of 760 New Zealanders who had reached the summit, only 49 made it out alive. In essence, the attack on Chunuk Bayir and its environs proved to be one of the costliest as well as the bloodiest endeavors of the entire Gallipoli campaign. Late August and early September saw yet another stalemate between the Allies and their Turkish adversaries. The intense heat combined with the putrefying bodies out in no man's land made eating difficult on both sides, especially the Ottomans, who were ravaged by an outbreak of dysentery that swept through their ranks. Poor sanitation led to a boom in the fly population, the swarms of which would linger over any and all unwrapped and open food, as well as the rotting flesh of the dead. Several accounts from both sides of the conflict reported that the stench of death pervaded everything, and was so strong that it stayed with them long after they left the battlefield. And yet, under such dire circumstances, the Allies and the Turks would entertain each other by exchanging gifts, playing shooting games with their rifles, and even call out to one another from their respective trenches. Such is the nonsense and insanity of war. With the failure of the August offensive, the Gallipoli campaign began to wane. By that point, it was blatantly clear to the Allies that it was a lost cause. Overseas, reports of Ottoman victories began to sway the Commonwealth's opinion of the conflict, as well as the performance of General Sir Ian Hamilton as the mastermind behind the campaign. On October 11th, after six months at the Turkish Straits, the idea of an evacuation was finally proposed. Though Hamilton was initially against the idea, fearing that such a move would, quote, damage British military prestige, unquote, he was ultimately silenced and overruled when he was relieved of his duties. His replacement, Lieutenant General Sir Charles Monroe, was a bit keener on the idea, especially given that autumn had brought with it gale-force winds, excessive rainfall and flooding, and the occasional blizzard. The combination of these four factors led to even more casualties by frostbite, drowning, or simply freezing to death. Such conditions, with the added complication of Bulgaria joining the war on the side of the Central Powers, meant that the Ottomans would be able to receive reinforcements and artillery overland from their German allies, who had opened a route through Bulgaria for the sole purpose of facilitating this process. By late November, High Command had approved of the evacuation, and, on December 7th, it began. For nearly two weeks, the Allied troops were slowly but surely moved from Gallipoli. As a hush fell upon no man's land, some more adventurous Turks decided to step out from their own trenches to inspect those of their adversaries, only to find that they had been abandoned. In all, 35,268 soldiers were evacuated. Included among them were some 1,600 tons of equipment, 3,689 horses and pack mules, 328 vehicles, and 127 guns. Those vehicles that could not be salvaged were left behind with smashed wheels so as not to fall into the hands of the enemy. The livestock that couldn't be saved were shot. But these numbers were nothing when compared to the casualties, which accounted for some 30,000 individuals between both sides. The Gallipoli campaign had proven to be a total disaster for the Allies, due to a combination of neglectful planning, underestimating of the enemy's forces, and unfamiliarity with the terrain, the latter of which proved to be far more treacherous than anyone could have imagined. It virtually marked the end of Sir Ian Hamilton's military career. First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, however, would eventually rise through the British political machine to the rank of Prime Minister, a post that he would serve throughout World War II, leading Britain to victory in that conflict. But despite the campaign's notoriety as one of the biggest military blunders in history, it was the heroism and courage of those who fought in it that have truly endured. Several monuments in Britain, France, Australia, New Zealand, and even Turkey pay tribute to the men on both sides of the conflict, who gave their lives for their respective countries as well as the cause. Today, the ground at Gallipoli, now known as Gelibolu, is considered sacred and hallowed. Whether Turk, Australian, New Zealander, Brit, or Frenchman, it's unanimously agreed that it has been nourished by the blood of the fallen, and will always be remembered for the hellish events that took place there so long as human history endures.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this two-part episode on the Gallipoli Campaign. To me, the history of World War I is extremely important in understanding our modern world, but the further we move away from it, the easier it is to forget. You might notice that I've done a number of episodes that revolve around this conflict, and the reason is to remind people of just how critical it was in shaping the politics and demographics of the 20th century and beyond. I hope I've been successful in this venture. If you enjoyed this segment and would like to support me to ensure future content, please consider supporting me monthly. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing help me in a big way as well, so please do so on all streaming platforms. I'll see you next week for yet another engaging and informative episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.